Well, good morning. I'm on here because I did not test it, so. Uh, it's good to see everyone here this morning, and it's always good to be with God's people and to worship the Lord together. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're entering into chapter 2 of Genesis this morning. And we're going to look at the first three verses this morning. Now, have you ever seen those pictures that have, they look like one thing. They look like this one particular picture. But when you look a little bit closer, when you look a little bit more intently at the picture, you see something else in that picture. You see some other kind of hidden meaning in that picture. Well, this morning we're going to look at several pictures like that. And so I want to see if you can identify those things in these pictures. And so here's the first one. You all know what that is, don't you? Yeah, Baskin Robbins. Ice cream. We all love ice cream. So do you see the hidden meaning in this picture? 31. Yes, this was the easy one, okay? I, I gave you an easy one right off the bat. Yeah, 31. 31 flavors. That's the... That's the slogan for Baskin Robbins. Look at the next picture here for you sports fans. Anybody know what that logo is? It's baseball. What? But whose logo is it? Yeah, it's Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah. So, do you see the hidden stuff in there? Yeah. In the mitt, there is an M and a B. So there's that hidden meaning. Okay, those were two easy ones. Okay. Here is the good one. So what do you see there? Yeah. A tree. A tree, Jason. I knew there was one person here that could really get it. Yeah. It's an amazing picture with the gorilla and the lion in that tree there. And so, you know, we, you, you look at pictures like that and you see something and then all of a sudden you see something else in it. Well, when we come to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I kind of believe that's what we see here in these verses. There are some very obvious things that we see in these verses about the seventh day and what God was doing there on that seventh day. But when you take a closer look, when we look a little bit more intently into these verses, there are some hidden truths that I believe that God wants us to discover about the Sabbath. Now, unfortunately, many of us as believers today, all that we see is the obvious of these, these truths, uh, the obvious of these verses. We don't see what is hidden. And so, because we don't see what is hidden, we're not able to appropriate what God wants us to appropriate into our lives. Now, does that mean that God is hiding things from us? No, not, not, not. God doesn't hide anything from us as believers. He's not hiding us from us, His people. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, He said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now let me ask you, does that sound like God's hiding from us? Holding out from us? No. It sounds like we're not doing our part. 
and asking and seeking and knocking. And so this morning, I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to ask God this morning. I want to ask you to seek God this morning. I want to ask you to ask God or to knock and ask God to expect Him to open to you and to speak to you this morning. And so I want to ask you to do those things. Let's pray. Father God, You are here this morning and You desire to speak to Your people. Father, I pray that You will just open the truth of Your Word to each person in this room this morning. And that God, that You will be glorified when You do it. God, help me. Uh, Lord, I, I am inadequate to be able to, to share Your Word this morning. So I just pray that Your Spirit would just take Your Word and open the minds of each person here this morning. Speak to us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 2, and let's look at the first three verses here. This is what the Word of God says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and He made it holy, because on, on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Now one of the most obvious things that we see in these verses here this morning is the thing that we don't see. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? The obvious thing is what we don't see here. Because what we don't see on day 7 is any mention of evening and morning. Like in the rest of the days. There's nowhere in these verses that it mentions that God did this on day 7 and then there was evening and there was morning. We see no mention whatsoever. Like day 1. He created day one, and then there was evening and morning, day one. And there was evening and morning, day two. And so on and so on. But we don't see that here. But when we come to the seventh day, there is no mention of that. Now, whether you hold a strict 24-hour day time frame of creation... Or whether or not you have this, you have this idea that evening and morning is were more indicative of some developing process that was going on in each day. We all have to agree here this morning that when it comes to the seventh day, there is no mention whatsoever of evening and morning. Now, why is that? Why did not God say, and then there was evening and there was morning? Well, He did this because God finished, He was finished with creation. He finished creation. Twice in these verses, we see a phrase that, with the word finished. 
Heaven and earth was finished. God finished His work. This word finished literally means to bring a process to a completion. The word finished means to bring to completion. And so what we see here is God's work in completion or in creation was completed. It was finished. There was nothing more to be added to creation. And so whatever your view is here this morning, there's one thing that we all can agree on here this morning, and that's this. That there is no morning, there is no mention of evening and morning. When it comes to the seventh day, this Sabbath day, it is a day that is complete. It is a day that will always be the same whenever we experience it. Listen, it isn't something that you grow into. Sabbath isn't something that you grow into. Sabbath is something that you step into and discover it to be exactly what it always is. And so that's the first obvious thing we see in these verses. But there's something else. There's a second obvious fact that we see in these verses that I want you to see, and it's this. It is the supreme meaning behind these verses. The supreme meaning. Well, what is the supreme meaning that God wants us to get from these verses here in Genesis chapter 2? He wants us to see this. The supreme meaning is all about rest. It's about rest. Interesting note here in these verses. The word, the basic Hebrew word for seven and Sabbath and rest is the same word. It's Shabbat. It's Shabbat. And so at the heart of the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is this idea of rest. It's rest. When we see these verses, it says, He rested. God rested. Now, lest you misunderstand what we're saying here by the word rest, this word rest isn't the same way that we use the word rest. Okay? When we use the word rest, it's kind of like when we had a hard day at work and we come home and, and we're longing to get in our lazy boy and kick back and maybe just take a nap because our bodies are tired. Our bodies are wore out. Or maybe you work hard all day and you, you, you go home and you even have to mow the yard and you have to do this and you have to do all this work at home. And when you hit your pillow, hits the head, your, your head hits the pillow, man, you're out like a light. Why? Because your body is depleted. Your body is wore out. You need rest. Our, we, we, get, we need rest for the replenishing of our bodies, the restoring of our strength for the next day. But listen, this word rest here in relationship to God is not like that. This word in no way indicates, by the, it doesn't indicate that God in any way had any kind of weariness. It's not like somehow God was wore out after creating, that He needed a rest. In fact, I want you to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. 
Look what it says in verse 28. Isaiah 40, 28 says this, have you, not heard, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Listen, God does not faint and He does not grow weary. Listen, when God works either in creation or either in His upholding of His creation, like it mentions in Hebrews chapter 1, by the power of His Word, He or He does some particular task in our world today, there is no lost energy with God. There is no lost energy. There is no breaking down of His strength. There is no disintegration of the uh, uh, absolute power and purity of His holy power. He doesn't lose anything like we did. That's why Psalms 121.4 says this, He does not slumber and He does not sleep. Folks, listen. God does not need to be replenished or does He need to be refreshed like you and I need to be replenished and refreshed. Now, what that means is this. It simply means that that God... Well, what, what does the word rest really mean here then? What does the word rest mean? It means simply this. To stop work. To stop work. To cease working. Alright? Now, lest we make the mistake here thinking that here back in Genesis chapter 3 when God rested that He stopped working completely that's not true. No, God is still working. Even now as you and I are here in this room God is working in our lives. Amen. He is working in your life this morning. What this means is that God stopped creating anymore. But He is working. Every day God is working. Even on the Sabbath. That was the problem the Pharisees had with Jesus. You see, they were constantly hounding Jesus about working on the Sabbath. But Jesus would over and over point out that His Father was working. His Father was working until now. And I am working, Jesus would say. You see, this was his argument. Jesus would say to them, he said, Listen, I, I am doing, it's proper for me to do good deeds on the Sabbath because God has not ceased from doing good deeds in love and mercy on the Sabbath. Because God, his Father worked, Jesus worked. And so, we see here that God did not cease all his work, he only ceased his creative work in creation. And that's what the word means. The seventh day was all about God resting. Ceasing the work in creation. But there's something else behind this idea of, of word rest that I want you to see. And it's found in Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. We see this. Now in Exodus 31, God is speaking to Moses. And He's telling Moses... 
why the people are to keep the Sabbath. And notice what he says here in verse 16. It says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and my people, Israel, that in the sixth day the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. Now you say, wait a second. Did you not just tell us earlier that God doesn't need to be refreshed? I did. But this word refreshed doesn't mean the same thing as we think refresh means. Okay? This word here used for refresh, rested and he was refreshed, is the same word used back in Genesis chapter 2. But it is used here in a different way. Here it is used in the sense that God was satisfied. And God delighted in what He had just accomplished. And what He had just completed. You see, this is really the response of God when He, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, He said, he, after creating man, on the sixth day He stood back and He looked at it and He saw, saw it all. All His creation from day 1 to day 6. He saw it all and He said what? He said, it's very good. It is very good. This is God's response to this. And it's really a result of that, what God did. And so God saw it, saw, saw it was very good, and then God stepped back and said, I'm satisfied and I delight in what I have completed and, and accomplished here. You see, it's much like a master painter. You take the master painter, he paints his picture, and he finishes this, this masterpiece of a picture, and he steps back and he looks at it and he says, I'm satisfied with that. And he delights in what he has accomplished. Or a master sculptor, a guy who can take a, a clay and he can, he can mold and shape something into a, a, an incredible statue with all these details and uh, precision details of this sculpture. And he steps back and he looks at it and he says, I'm satisfied with that. And I delight in that. Listen, the same is true with God. God rested and He stepped back from creating. He ceased creating anymore. And He stepped back and He said, I'm satisfied and I delight in what I have created. And so, the supreme meaning in these verses here is that God rested. He rested from His creation. He stopped creating anymore because it was complete. It was complete. Now, that leads us to the next obvious truth that we see in these verses, and it's this. That this day, is a, there's a uniqueness to this day. There is a uniqueness to this day. Back in Genesis chapter 3, or chapter 2, verse 3, look what it says here. It says in verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day, and He made it holy, because on, the, on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Now, what does it mean here when it says that God blessed the seventh day, and He made it holy? 
You know, it's almost like God was saying here that this, is, this day is unique. It's almost like He's saying that this day has some kind of unique character about itself. Some unique character in it. And so, God blessed this seventh day. Now, what does that mean, to bless? Well, Dylan gave us a good, a good definition of what it means to bless something or to bless someone. It means to, last week he said, it means to give a divine enabling. When you bless somebody, it's a divine enabling. Now, why? Why does someone need to be divine enabled? Well, because behind every blessing, there is a divine purpose to fulfill. There is a divine purpose. And we saw that very clearly in day six. When God blessed man, what did He do? He blessed him, and then He said, Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So, behind this blessing, this divine enabling, God put a divine purpose for man to accomplish. To fill the earth and subdue it. And so, that's why, you know, when we think of this blessing... God blessed this day and it was because there's a divine purpose. In fact, Genesis chapter 12, we see this again. When God called Abraham to leave his country and to go to a place that he did not know where he was going, the Bible says that God blessed him and said to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Well, why was that? It's because God, behind that blessing that God gave him, God gave him a divine purpose to bless all the nations. That he was to be a blessing to all the nations. And we know that that came to fruition through Jesus Christ. And so, we know that ultimately the purpose of that was fulfilled in Christ. But, so God blessed the day and He made it holy. He set it apart. God set this day apart from all other days of creation. Now why did He set it apart and make it holy? Well, the writer of Genesis tells us very clearly. Look here in chapter three or verse 3 again. It says, God blessed the seventh day and He made it holy. And here's the purpose clause. Because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Why did God make this they holy and set it apart. It was because of God Himself. God did it Himself. The seventh day was not holy and set apart because of the day in itself. Because it was the seventh day. It was holy and set apart because God blessed it. And because God Himself did cease from creating anymore. Thus it was blessed and the holy day is to fulfill God's divine purpose for it. Now, here is where the problem begins. Okay? You see, we have groups of people in our day who believe that somehow that this day, the, the seventh day, is a holy day in and of itself. It's a holy day in and of itself, set apart. And so in other words, we have... We have to keep this day holy. Now, whether it would be Orthodox Jews that say that the Sabbath 
is a holy day, or whether it be Seventh-day Adventists or Seventh-day Baptists who say that Saturday is a day that we are to worship God because it is a holy Sabbath, or even some Christians who say that Sunday is a holy day and they set it apart and they put some kind of restrictions upon that day that you, you just can't do certain things because it's a holy day. It's a holy day. Listen. Right here is the thing. God's true Sabbath is not about a day. It's not about a day. It is about rest. Okay? It's about rest. Even the Jewish Sabbath that when Moses instituted it back in the day was merely a shadow. It was a shadow or a picture of the true Sabbath rest of God. And so this is what I mean, okay? By it was a shadow. Every Old Testament picture in the Old Testament is a picture or a shadow of something to come. Something to come. It was a prediction or a foreview to the coming of Christ. The one who would fulfill all those wonderful things mentioned in the Old Testament. Listen, every lamb that was offered as a sacrifice was a shadow of Christ. Every burnt offering, every piece of incense that was offered was a picture of the fragrance of Christ. The tabernacle was a shadow of Christ. The high priest in his garments, in his office, was a, a, a shadow of Christ as our high priest. All you have to do is read through the book of Hebrews. And you'll see this over and over and over. You see, the Old Testament shadows were looking forward to the coming of Christ. And the one who would fulfill all these things and bring the shadow to an end. They would bring the he would bring the shadow to an end. When Christ finished His work on the cross, the shadows were no longer needed. Now, Catherine and Dylan are waiting anxiously for the arrival of their new little girl. They are, they are anticipating any day that her, her arrival. Now, I know that they have this sonogram picture on the refrigerator. And when Catherine goes to the refrigerator and she begins to open that refrigerator, she looks at that picture. She gazes at that picture. And she's just anticipating what's coming. And she just marvels at God's creation and God, what God's going to do through that little girl. But there's coming a day, hopefully sooner than later, there's coming a day when Catherine is going to hold that little girl in her arms. And she's going to look down at that little girl. And she's going to fix her gaze at that little girl. And she's going to marvel at that little girl and just be amazed at her. And she's not going to look at that picture on the refrigerator any longer. It's gone. It's past. And that is exactly what has happened to the foreshadows of the Sabbath. Because Christ has come. You see, when Jesus came and finished His work at the cross, while hanging on the cross, what did He cry out? He said, 
It is finished. It is finished. The work is finished. And He's made possible the true Sabbath to be fulfilled in our lives. No longer do you need a picture. No longer do you need a picture of looking to Christ. Because we have the real thing now. Now, Paul gives us, makes this so clear to us in Colossians chapter 3. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is incredible. What the Word of God says here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Thank you for the water. Colossians 3, or excuse me, Colossians 2, verse 13. It says this, And you who were dead in the trespasses and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's all of us, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now why, what does this mean to us? We'll look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Why? Here it is. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hallelujah. We don't have to look at the picture any longer. We have the real thing in Christ. Makes it pretty clear to me. Pretty clear to me. So, with that being said, that leads us to some, some hidden truths, some, some not so obvious things that we see in these verses about the Sabbath. Now, although the shadow Sabbath has ceased, here it is, God's true Sabbath still remains. God's true Sabbath still remains. In a sense, there is a Sabbath that God wants you and I to live in. A physical sense God has given us. A physical sense of the Sabbath God has given us. He's given us this pattern of life to live by. He has given us a rhythm of life for us to live in, not a regulation to live under. Six days God worked. And then He rested on the seventh. That pattern, that rhythm, I believe is what God wants us to follow in our lives. Now, whether it is a Saturday, or whether it's a Sunday, or whether it's a Tuesday, a Monday, a Wednesday, it doesn't matter what day it is. The day is not important. What is important is the ceasing of work. Stopping the busyness of life and having our focus refocused on not working, but focused on God and enjoying God and enjoying the things of God, 
has given us to really truly live. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to cease work. I find it hard to stop working. It doesn't matter, even if I have a day off, I can always find something to do work-wise. There's plenty to do it at home. There's so much, I have so many, I have so many, I'm not going to say honeydews because it's me dudes, okay? Me dudes. But there's always something to do. All kinds of work to do. And I find myself just really struggling to, to take time and to rest and stop and enjoy the things of God. And maybe you are the same way. Listen. What God is saying to us is that He has given us a pattern. There's a pattern, there's a rhythm that God has given us to work six days. And then stop and rest. Rest and enjoy God. Be refreshed by God. We need to get rest. We need to be rejuvenated. Enjoy God and the things of God. And I want you to know, I'm trying to learn that. I'm trying to learn how to do that. And I hope that you will try to learn how to do that too, if you're not. So there's this physical... This physical sense, this physical aspect to God's Sabbath that He has for us. But yet there's something else. There is also a faith aspect of God's Sabbath rest. There is this faith aspect of God's Sabbath rest that I believe that many of us don't even see. We don't even see it. And we're... And because we don't see it, we're so we're so leading lives that are unnecessary because we don't see this faith aspect of God's Sabbath rest. In fact, I want you to see this with me in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter four. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from His. Now what is the writer of Hebrews talking about here? What the writer of Hebrews is talking about is what I really sense that many of us have failed to see in our lives. And that's this faith Sabbath. So the writer here says this. He says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The Sabbath rest is not this foreshadowing. 
It's not the shadow Sabbath. This is the real thing. This is the real Sabbath that God wants us to, to enter into. And the writer says, it, it, it remains for us people of God. It remains for us. Well, how do you know that you've entered into the Sabbath rest of God? Well, the writer tells us. He says in verse 10, he says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. If you have rested from your works, and it's not talking about physical labor, it's talking about our striving and working to do and to find recognition and all those kind of things. Many of us in this room, listen, many of us in this room have trusted the gospel for salvation. We've trusted the gospel. We have come to believe that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or approval when it comes to our forgiveness of sins. It is only in, in and through what Christ has done on our behalf at the cross. It is only through His work that we have forgiveness of our sins and we enter into a relationship with Him. Now we believe that, and that is the gospel. Okay? That's the gospel. But, and this is a big but, when it comes to the everyday stress of life, when it comes to the unexpected problems that we face in life, the difficulties that crop up in our lives, the conflicts within and the conflicts without, when it comes to the everyday situations that we face and the sins that so easily beset us, when I feel like that I have to do more and I have to try harder and I have to do more and I have to be more devoted, more committed, I have to do, do, and do, and do, and do, until I'm drowning in doing. That's when we feel like I just keep working and working and working to try to find, get God's favor. Try to please God. While all along we have failed to realize that we have to stop doing and start trusting and start relying upon the One who has done it for us already, and that's Christ. In other words, we can believe the Gospel for salvation, but we can't believe the Gospel for living out this Christian life. Listen, these words here in Hebrews 4, when he wrote, when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, these words here, talking about entering into God's Sabbath rest, the context of this that he wrote it in was God's people, the children of Israel, they had this, 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 uh, this evil, unbelieving heart. And they would not believe God for what He had done for them. You see, the whole, in this whole context, the children of Israel, God had delivered them out of Egypt. He had brought them right up to the promised land. They sent the spies in. You know what they saw. You know the story. The spies returned. Two of them gave a good report. The others gave this bad report. And who did the people believe? Instead of believing God, they believed the bad report. 
They had an evil and unbelieving heart that God was able, oh yeah, God could deliver them, but God was not able to keep them and sustain them and give them victory and give them peace and all this in the, in the promised land. And that is the context here that the writer of Hebrews shares this with. In fact, look at back to chapter 3. And this is what the writer tells the people that he's writing to in verse 12. He says, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Listen, the writer tells us that this can happen to all of us. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. We can... We can have this evil, unbelieving heart where we will not believe that God can take care of us in this Christian life and that somehow we have to do this and we have to do that in order to be pleasing to God. Listen, if you can believe the gospel for your salvation, then believe the gospel and God for the everyday things in this Christian life. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to work. Uh, stop working to somehow feel better about yourself. Stop trying to fight your sin in your own strength. Stop trying to pay more or pray more and read more and come to church more that somehow God will, will look at you and, and somehow you'll be pleasing to Him. Believe the Gospel. Trust Christ even for the everyday things of your life. Don't let your hearts become hard, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and somehow have this unbelieving heart. And I'm encouraging you in that today. Because today is called today. And really what that means, every day that we get up, what do we call it? We call it today. You're in today, you need to be encouraged that your hearts will not be led away with this unbelieving heart. And that's what we need to be doing to, for one another. Encouraging each other as long as today is called today. Now, here's the question. Here's the question to all of us this morning. How do we enter into the rest that, God, that remains for the people of God? How do you enter into God's rest that He is, has for you? Well, I believe the answer is given to us by Jesus Himself. And we see this answer in Matthew chapter 11. So quickly, let's turn to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. These are familiar verses to us. Matthew 11, starting in verse 28. Jesus is speaking to us here. 
Listen to what Jesus says to you this morning. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first thing I want you to see here in these verses is this. There is an invitation to all of us. There is an invitation from Jesus to all of us. If you're here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ, if you have never trusted in the gospel, there's an invitation to you, and that's to come. Come to Jesus. If you are a believer here this morning, and you have trusted the gospel, there still is an invitation to us as well, and that is to come to Jesus. You see, all of us have this invitation to come, to come to Jesus. But there's a second thing I want you to see in these verses, and it's this. There are two types of... There's two types of rest mentioned in these verses. One is a rest that is given. And one, secondly, there is a rest that is found. A rest that is given and a rest that is found. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, whether you realize it or not, you are heavy laden by your sin. Your sin and the weight of your sin is on your shoulders. It's on you. And you're weighed down by your sin. But Jesus says to you, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I will take that weight off of your shoulders. I will relieve you of that, that weight. And no longer do you have to carry your weight around. The sin and the weight of your sin is not on you any longer. I've taken it from you. Jesus did that and made that possible for you at the cross. He died on the cross for your sins. Amen. And so you don't have to carry the weight of sin any longer. Jesus has carries your weight right now. He's made it possible. So just come to Him and He will give you rest from your salvation, from your sin. But then to those of us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, the invitation that He gives us is to come to Him and take His yoke upon us. Take His yoke upon us and learn from Him. And folks, what that is, is simply being a disciple. That is being a disciple. What a beautiful picture Jesus gives us here of this yoke, of a yoke. You see, when Jesus uses the picture of a yoke, he knew exactly what he was talking about. In fact, Jesus grew up in a carpenter's home. And Jesus was a carpenter himself. 
And so, what is a yoke? Well, a yoke is simply a device that was made to put around an ox's neck or a pair of oxen's neck for the purpose of pulling a load or plowing a field. Now, the thing about a yoke was this. A yoke was not a one-size-fits-all. Unlike these baseball caps, these caps that we have that you buy and one-size-fits-all now. A yoke wasn't like that. But a yoke was specifically made for a particular ox or oxen. Because the yoke, when it was put around that oxen's neck, when and they began to work, no way did that carpenter or the farmer want that, uh, that yoke to rub that ox raw or to gall it in any way because that would keep it, that would, it would fight against it would fight against that. And so the carpenter would measure and he would take specific measurements of that ox and he would make that yoke specifically for that ox. Now here's the application to us this morning as believers. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Something that I have specifically made for you. Folks, listen. Jesus has a plan for your life. And He has made a yoke for you to fit in that is made just for you. And so, when you are doing life with Him, it shouldn't gall you. It shouldn't rub you raw. You should find relief now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be problems and difficulties and hardships. But it means you'll be able to live through it and go through it with joy and peace. And knowing that He is with you. He's made it specifically for us. And then Jesus says, He says, learn of me. Be my disciple. He says, I am gentle. I am humble in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. All these things, Jesus says, are associated with taking on His yoke upon us. And so what's the result of that? Well, He tells us, you will find rest for your soul. Anybody need rest for your soul here this morning? You need rest for your soul this morning? Take Jesus' yoke upon you. And He says, you will find rest. You want to know what the, the remedy of stress is? The remedy of conflict, difficulties, trying harder, fighting sin, doing more and more and more? It's found in taking the yoke of Jesus upon you. Surrendering your life to His Lordship. And what that means is you're no longer in control. He is in control. That's the answer. Way too many of us are living our Christian lives outside of the yoke of Jesus. Listen, it's time. It's time to get in the yoke. It's time to get in the yoke. The invitation to all of us this morning is this. Come to Jesus. 
And He will give you rest. He will give you rest or you will find rest for your souls. I want you to bow your heads right now. After I finish praying, we're going to enter into observing the Lord's Supper. This supper is for people of God who are believers in Christ, who have followed Christ. It is a time that we remember what He did for us on the cross. How He sacrificed His body. How He shed His blood for our sins. And it's also a time that we evaluate our lives with Him and before Him. It's also a time, as we take a supper, that we look forward to His return one day. Where we will see Him face to face. And so, if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, the invitation that Jesus has for you is to simply come to Him and take Take Him. Take Jesus and receive Christ. This morning, with your heads bowed, I really want us to really consider where we are at with God. Where, where are you at with, with God right now? And what has God said to you this morning? And how does God want you to respond to Him? Father, thank You. Thank you that, that you rested on the seventh day. Thank you for showing us what this rest is all about. Where it's really about ceasing from trying to work for approval, your approval, being right with you. Father, we don't need to work anymore. You've done the work for us. And it, it is finished. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you will just speak to your people. Speak to those, God, who have not, have never given their life to Christ. God, may we truly just worship you this morning, even as we enter into this Lord's Supper. Because you are so worthy. You're worthy of all our worship, all our praise, all of our adoration. We love you, we praise you, and we worship you in Christ's name.